I wish to read a portion of the second chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2. For yourselves, brethren, know our entering in unto you, that it hath not been found in vain. But having suffered before, and been shamefully treated, as ye know, at Philippi, we wax bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation is not of error, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But even as we have been approved of God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who proveth our hearts. For neither at any time were we found using words of flattery, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness, nor seeking glory of men, neither from you nor from others, when we might have claimed authority as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle in the midst of you, as when a nurse cherisheth her own children. Even so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were well pleased to impart unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were become very dear to us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travel, working night and day that we might not burden any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and righteously and unblameably we behaved ourselves toward you that believe, as ye know how we dealt with each one of you as a father with his own children, exhorting you and encouraging you and testifying to the end that ye should walk worthily of God who calleth you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this cause we also thank God without ceasing that when ye receive from us the word of the message, even the word of God, ye accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also worketh in you that believe thus far. Let us unite our hearts in prayer. Most gracious and almighty God, we come unto thee in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and King, our Lord and our God. Thou knowest, O God, for what reasons we have come together, for we are in the tension of the Church of Jesus Christ. We are in the midst of conflict and controversy. And thou knowest the sad things that have happened in the past. 
And thou knowest all the grief. And thou knowest all the sorrow that it has brought to thy church. Not only to the churches in which thou hast given us a name and place. But Lord, to all those who love the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For those that love thee, thou hast given the desire that all they should be one in thee and show that unity in the midst of this world. Thou knowest for what reasons we have come together in order that we may instruct thy people at this place in those things which have come to pass, in those things which have befallen us as Protestant Reformed churches over which we grieve and which has brought confusion to many of those who are members. And Lord, we look up unto thee for thy guidance, for the unction of thy Holy Spirit, for the love which is in Jesus Christ, so that also as we speak of these things, and we search out those things which have happened, and those things which thou dost require of us, we plead with thee and we implore thee that thou mayest give us thy grace and thy loving kindness, so that in all that we do, we may not seek revenge, but, Lord, that we may seek the unity of thy people, that we may seek the peace of Zion, that we may also seek those in love who have so bitterly and unjustly set themselves against us as faithful servants of Jesus Christ. And so we pray of thee, give unto thy servant especially, who is to bring the message in this evening, what he needs, that he may speak clearly, that he may speak with all honesty, and that he may speak with all love, and that to that end thou mayest strengthen him, and thou mayest be at his right and his left side, in order that also in this evening it may become clear that those who have set themselves against him have done so unjustly and in error, and could it be, Lord, that this meeting may also be a means to bring us together once again, that we may stand united in the truth of thy word, as it is expressed in our confessions, which we love and to which we hold. And so cause thy Holy Spirit to dwell in our midst and in our hearts. Keep us from all sin and evil, from all bitterness. And, Lord, dwell in all our hearts unto the glory of thy name. And remember us not only at this place, but thy Zion over all the world, that even in this evening thy kingdom may prosper, thy kingdom may be united, and those whom thou hast foreknown in love may also be brought from the darkness unto the marvelous light in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, gather thy kingdom and hasten the day of thy coming, 
when thy kingdom shall be perfected, when no strife and sin shall separate us anymore, but when we shall be perfectly one in thee, and we shall serve thee in spotless perfection in that new heaven and that new earth where righteousness shall dwell. We ask it for Jesus' sake alone. Amen. Dear friends, it is not our choice that we are here this evening for the purpose for which we have come. We have never intended to make propaganda of this nature of any kind at any time. But sometimes we are forced into positions which we do not choose, but after all, which become a calling and which we must fulfill for the good of the Church of Jesus Christ and for the sake of truth and justice in the Church. And because the opposition has chosen to make propaganda of this nature, even before the broader assemblies of our churches have spoken the last word, we felt, too, that uh, it was necessary that we come to this neighborhood and enlighten you. And therefore, we called up Reverend DeYoung last week, Saturday, and we asked him if it would be possible uh, to speak uh, in this community. And the brother promised that he would speak to some brethren about this, and the fruit is that this meeting has been arranged. Uh, probably to some of you it seems very strange that I am here uh, with Brother DeWolf, who has been suspended from office in our Protestant Reformed churches. I am not an unknown man in your midst. I have been in Sioux County 18 years. And I think not only of those people whom I have shepherdized by the grace of God, but even our Christian Reformed people and our Reformed people know me as a truly Protestant Reformed man. I've always been known for that, and I'm still known for that. I have not deserted the truth, as some falsely claim, and others dishonestly intimidate. I stand by the truth which I have always preached and which I love. But because I stand with Reverend Wolf in this evening, it is for the same reason. Because he loves that same truth and has always preached that same truth and has been very unjustly and unrighteously suspended from his office. And I had no other choice because I was a member of his consistory, being a member or missionary sent out by his consistory to choose between the two factions of that consistory when this consistory fell in two parts due to this illegal 
and unrighteous suspension. And when I studied the case, and I have done so for a long time, I chose for Reverend DeWolf and his elders and claimed them to be the legal and rightful consistory of the First Protestant Reformed Church of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Brethren, even though they claim that I today stand outside of the Protestant Reformed churches because I have chosen cause with Reverend DeWolf, and although they have in a certain way also suspended me, taken from me all the right to labor in my missionary endeavors, I want to assure you that I have taken this choice because of truth and of justice. Uh, you all know that Reverend DeWolf has been suspended because of two statements. I know the opposition claims that these two statements are indicative, are a sample of the whole sermon that he preached in which each one of these statements was found. I am sorry I did not hear the second sermon, but I heard the first sermon. And I must honestly say that all the intimidations are not true. It is rather strange that when I came from church that evening, I was a little bit disgusted with Reverend DeWolf because he preached on that portion of Holy Writ where the, whole, where the rich man in hell required that an angel be sent to his brethren to preach the gospel. And he received as an answer that they have the prophets and Moses and they should hear them. And Reverend DeVoe spoke on the sufficiency of God's Word. Now I think when one speaks on the sufficiency of God's Word, the congregation does not expect that the minister at least spends 20 minutes of his sermon talking about God's decree of eternal election. I believe in God's decree of eternal election. I love that doctrine, as I always did. But I don't believe that in a sermon of that type it finds its place to that extent in that 20 minutes, he also very clearly expounded that faith was absolutely the gift of God alone. And I said to my wife, I can't see why he spent 20 precious minutes on those subjects when his own subject did not call for it. But my wife said, and she can bear record to that, Reverend DeWolf must do that because of those in the church who continually oppose him. And he can't say anything until he has first again assured them that he believes in election and that he believes that all the gifts of salvation are the gift of God to us. And then, brethren, when you hear that two theological professors complain of two years of bad preaching, and they want to give their proof of two years of bad preaching of Reverend DeWolf. Two theological professors cannot give more proof than these two statements. And I say there's something wrong. 
And if he suspended because of those two statements merely, as the classes testified, then I say there is the greatest injustice done. Because these two statements were torn out of their context and they were interpolated to make it appear as if Reverend DeWolf preached the heresy. And therefore, in the cause of truth and of justice, I had to take sides with Reverend DeWolf. And I am very happy that in the community that knows me as a Protestant Reformed man for so many years, that I can stand here with this brother this evening and testify and witness that he has been a faithful minister in the church of which my family is a mem member, of which my father has been elder for years, and of which I myself am a missionary. I possibly do not have to introduce Reverend DeWolf. He is more or less known to you in this neighborhood, but he is the minister of the First Protestant Reformed Church of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I will now give the floor to him so that he can make his own case clear to show the illegality and the injustice of his suspension. Reverend Wolf. Beloved brothers and sisters, It is with uh, mixed emotion that I am here tonight, as I trust you well understand. It grieves me that I have to be here tonight, because this whole thing that has happened grieves me very deeply, more than I am able to say. And I trust that you will receive that from me. This is no pleasure for me to be here tonight for more than one reason. In the first place, because of the sad thing that has happened in our churches. And in the second place, because I am being opposed by the man whom I have always very highly respected because of the great ability which the Lord gave him and the man who taught me my theology and from whose teachings I am convinced I have not departed. You understand my position. Therefore, in that light, it's a very difficult position, and it is not the position of my own choosing. I have honestly tried throughout this whole discussion and controversy which we've had to keep the Church of Jesus Christ as Protestant Reformed Church in Grand Rapids and our churches together and to avoid a split. Already when very prematurely some people were talking split, 
And we're trying to make people believe that there was a need of a split until I believe they began to think that there should be a split. I mean the people in general. Now, I know that I'm at a great disadvantage here because I'm not very well known to you folks. I've preached here in this neighborhood a few times, but I'm not as well known as the Reverend Hooksima, and that, of course, puts me at a disadvantage. But I shall attempt this evening to make plain to you a few of the things that happened during the treatment of this case which concerned two statements that I made and which resulted finally in the separation in our first church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I shall try to be as brief as possible, and I ask that you will kindly bear with me that some of these things you have undoubtedly heard before may be somewhat tedious to you, but I'll try to go through these things as quickly as possible and present them as briefly as possible and not tire you any more than necessary. <clears throat> I would say that the case began with the preaching of a sermon, as Reverend Camminger mentioned, on April 15, 1951. Against that sermon, there were two protests. One by the Reverend Ophoff, Professor Ophoff, who is known to most of you, I trust, and another by Mr. D. Yonker, who I think is also, was also quite well known. The Lord has taken him away. He was quite well known because for many years he was the stated clerk of our Senate and of our classes in the East. These uh, two protests really boiled down to one statement. I know that other statements have been quoted, but they were not taken into consideration, although they are being used now again. They did not enter into the case. It boiled down to this statement that I am supposed to have made that God promises every one of you that if you believe, you will be saved. I say that I am supposed to have made that statement because I don't honestly know whether I said it exactly like that, but I assume the responsibility for that statement because I believe that it can be correctly interpreted, and I said something like that. The uh, Reverend Upoff came to my house and we talked about this thing. We talked quite a while and the result was that Reverend Upoff said he was not going to protest. We talked again some time later and then the Reverend Upoff finally called me up and he said that he was going to protest after all. And his protest really concerned not the statement of my sermon anymore, although he brought that in but it concerned matters that we had talked about 
uh, in connection with that sermon and in connection with the statement. Principally, the question whether you could speak of more than one promise, and whether you could speak of promises as well as promise, or whether promises was always the promise. On that, we did not agree. I told the Reverend Uphoff that I didn't think it was quite fair that he would go to the consistory with this thing after we had ironed it out that way. And uh, he told me that he felt he had to do that because he wanted the consistory to express itself. He wanted it to be a case so that the consistory could express itself. Uh, the Mr. Yonker, by the way, never appeared at my home at any time. Now, in the consistory, the case was given into the hands of a committee. And uh, after laboring for some time, the result was that the consistory adopted my explanation and also urged the Protestants to do the same. I want to uh, read that to you so that you'll know what I'm uh, talking about. This is what the consistory urged the Protestants to accept. The one... The Reverend DeWolf has assured the consistory that he had no intention of teaching a general promise and has every intention of continuing to maintain and defend the doctrine as taught in our Protestant Reformed churches. Two, we believe of the Reverend DeWolf that this is true on the basis of his own testimony. Therefore, the statement objected to in the protest against the sermon of April 15 must be construed in this light. And three, the Protestants be urged to accept this testimony of the pastor. Now that decision was taken on September 5 of 1951. And that decision was never rescinded. The result of that decision was that the Reverend Opoff dropped his case. Uh, the uh, Mr. Yonker, however, did not do that, and he insisted that he was not satisfied, and that more had to be done about it. And so the consistory again reopened the case and uh, demanded of me that I would apologize, not for the fact that the statement was not a concise statement of the truth, which I was willing to admit, but that it was not the statement of the truth of Scripture in the Confessions, which meant that it was a lie. I told the consistory that I couldn't do that. I told the consistory that I would say that the statement was not clear and that it could be misinterpreted, especially when lifted out of its context, against which I objected, but that I believe that that statement could be correctly interpreted and should be correctly interpreted in the light of the context of the sermon and in the light of the context of all my preaching 
in all my preaching, as long as I've been a minister, and particularly in eight years of preaching in the Fuller Avenue congregation. I had also, by the way, informed the consistory that I would not use that statement again, just exactly because it was not clear. I said I will refrain from using that statement. And that's the way the case stood. Consistory was still demanding an apology for that. When, on September 14 of 1952, I preached another sermon against which protests were lodged. I'll come to that in just a moment. I would like to state that in the meantime, the Reverend Kaminga had preached a sermon against which the Reverend Ophoff protested. And during the treatment of that case, the Reverend Hookson drew up an opinion concerning the sermon of Reverend Kaminga and the sermon which I had preached, although the Reverend Hookson had never heard that sermon and took his evidence from the protests of these two men whom I have mentioned before. Uh, however, the uh, Reverend Hooksima did not protest against that sermon at that time. And that means that if the Mr. Yonker had received the advice of his consistory and had uh, charitably interpreted that statement of mine as it should have been interpreted, the whole case would have been dropped. There would have been nothing left of it. It was through his insistence that the case remained. And now I would like to submit to you that if that first statement is actually so heretical, how could the Reverend Ophoff drop his case? And why didn't the Reverend Hooksom protest against it at the time that he delivered his opinion? Why permit me to go on and to continue to preach when the conviction was there that I had preached heresy. They contend, however, even though I was permitted to preach from April 51 to September 52, I was permitted to preach to function in my office. They nevertheless now claim that upon the basis of that statement, partially, that one statement, I am now unworthy to be a minister in the Protestant Reformed churches. Not only that, but I am being, I am worthy of being excommunicated from the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to be cast out as a heathen and a publican. That's what suspension and deposition must mean. It cannot mean anything else. Now we come to the second sermon, the sermon that was preached on September 14, 1952, in which I preached on the passage that you have in Matthew 18, 1-4, where the Lord sets a little child in the midst of his disciples, because they have been arguing together quite vehemently about the question, who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And the Lord uh, set this uh, little child in their midst. And the Lord said to them that except that they would convert themselves, or they would turn, or be converted, uh, and become as little children, they could not enter into the kingdom of God. And so I spoke in that sermon of the fact that conversion is a prerequisite to our entering into the kingdom of God. Against that sermon, there were seven protests. Now, I know that sounds like a lot. Seven protests in a church that numbers almost 500 families. That doesn't make it quite so many. One of the protests was that of the Reverend Hoxima, another by the Reverend Ophoff. Of the five remaining protests, two were returned because the charges were so general and there were no basis given for the charges made. And the other three protests were accepted and were never officially treated and to this day have never been answered. Besides of those five protests, apart from those of the two professors, those five protests came from people who were known to be very closely associated together in our congregation. In fact, it was general knowledge that these people were a group, or as we often say, a clique. And so it is very easy to understand that also the protests of these people were very, very similar, almost to the extent that parts of them were identical. Now, while I'm talking about that, I would also like to say, because it has been said that these two statements which I made has caused a lot of trouble in the congregation of Fuller Avenue. I would like to say that that is not true and that the majority of the people in our congregation will certainly witness to that fact. It was not my statement. It was not my preaching. But it was the agitation and the talk and the rumor of these few that caused the disturbance in our congregation. But to get back to the protests, essentially all of the remaining protests were sidetracked in favor of the protest of the Reverend Hoxima. The Reverend Ophoff's protest was barely treated, either in the consistory or in the classes. And I might mention, too, that the Reverend Ophoff again took up his protest, which he had dropped almost a year previous. He renewed that protest at this time. And so the consistory met the very following day, after I preached that second sermon. That was September 15th. And the Reverend Hooksima brought a copy of his protest to my house, at about six o'clock that evening.
I understand that the Reverend Hoeksma had been to my house earlier, right after dinner, I believe, and not, had not been able to contact me. So he brought me that protest at six o'clock in the evening. Although the Reverend Hoeksma had said to me the evening in which I preached that sermon, that he would first have to talk to me before he could shake hands with me. I had not expected that he would come with an official protest, but he did. And when he had delivered it, he turned around and walked out and went home. We did not talk together at all about the protest. I did not read it in his presence, and there was no discussion about it. We had consistory meeting that very evening. And now I don't want to talk about personalities. I have refused to do that throughout. I have asked the Lord throughout this whole struggle to keep my heart free from bitterness and malice and to keep me free from using any weapons of the flesh. I want no dirt and I want no mudslinging on my side of this issue at all. I don't want it. I have to stand in the judgment of God someday. And I am glad that I will be able to stand in the judgment of God someday when all these things will be revealed. And I do not want things like that to be laid at my door, at the door of those who stand with me. The cause of Jesus Christ and the cause of his church is not dependent upon man, upon efforts of man, and certainly not upon fleshly struggle on the part of man. And I have asked the Lord to keep me free from that and although I'm a sinner, just as all of you are, and we certainly cannot go through trials and struggles like this without sinning, I can honestly say that in my heart, even tonight, there is no bitterness, there is no enmity, and that's not why I'm here. And I don't want to spread anything like that tonight. I have to talk about the Reverend Hoeksma. I have to. I can't help but do that just as much as the Reverend Hoeksma had to talk about me. And although I may say some things that are hard for you to hear and perhaps even hard for you to believe, and I can understand that because they're hard for me to believe, I hope and trust that you will receive it in the spirit in which I say it. And that I mention only personalities in as far as they are pertinent to the case. Now when we had that meeting that Monday night immediately after the preaching of that sermon, And the Reverend Hoeksema was given the floor in order to read his protest. It became very evident that he was very angry. And instead of reading his protest, the Reverend Hoeksema prefaced his protest with many uncomplimentary 
and derogatory remarks about my own person, about my abilities as a minister, about my faithfulness, about my trustworthiness, and many other things which had nothing to do with the case at all. And the Reverend Hooksima presented to my consistory that evening, the very first thing, before he read his protest, the alternative to choose for him or to choose for me. That was the beginning of this case. After those remarks, for some of which the Reverend Hooksima has belatedly apologized, I say belatedly because he did it after the whole case was settled, not before, for some of them. Then we had the protest. That protest was read, and uh, the Reverend Okoff's protest was read. Although I had no copy of it, I waived the right to have a copy, because the Reverend Okoff assured me that he would give me a copy of it. Now, throughout this case, the Reverend Hooksma, especially, but also the Reverend Opoff, but especially the Reverend Hooksma, gave leadership in the consistory, pressed every advantage which he could find, made and suggested motions, and in some cases even voted. I protested against this, as did also some of my elders, because we felt that it wasn't just. One of the elders made the remark that he was sure that if this case did not involve the senior pastor of the First Protestant Reformed Church, things would have gone entirely different from what they did. That remark was made at least three times without ever being challenged. And the Reverend Hooksma did not submit himself to the consistory, nor did he submit his protest to the consistory to be considered and judged by the consistory, which would have been the orderly way and if he was not satisfied with the decision of the consistory, he could protest. He could protest the decision of his consistory and he could go on to classes. But the Reverend Hooksma was not satisfied to do that. All the way through, he steered the consistory by suggesting motions and by leading the discussion in such channels as he uh, thought were advantageous to himself. I want to read to you from a protest which I handed in to my consistory on this action of the Protestants. I'm not simply saying these things. I want you to know that 
these things are written. And there's documental evidence. So I want to read just briefly from a certain letter I wrote to the consistory on October 1, 1952. However, I object to the use which the Protestants make of their position in the consistory by suggesting and insisting upon certain motions which they desire and in this way bringing pressure to bear on the consistory and steering the treatment of their own protests in such channels as they may deem advantageous to their own cause. If this policy is continued, it can only mean that the consistory becomes involved in endless polemics that can only serve to becloud the case at hand. The Protestants have presented their protests to the consistory. Why then do they not entrust their case to the consistory and await its reply? I assure the consistory that I am perfectly willing to absent myself and leave this whole matter in your hands with the provision that the Protestants do likewise. And should the consistory, not the Protestants, desire any information of me as defined above, I will readily comply. However, I shall refuse to debate and discuss any matter with the Protestants either orally or in writing. Finally, I would remind the consistory, as the minutes also show, that I am proceeding in this matter under protest. One, against the personal accusations of the Reverend Hooksima, stated in the consistory meeting of September 15, 1952, and verified and aggravated in a letter read to the consistory in the meeting of September 18, 1952, which was received for information. Two, against the fact that the consistory has done nothing about this and has even permitted him to administer and partake of the Lord's Supper, although it was known to you all that he had openly condemned and repudiated a fellow minister in good standing. Brethren, how can the consistory expect the Lord's blessing on its labors as long as you permit such conditions to continue? Now, in spite of all these things, in spite of the fact that I protested against that over and over again, Consistory went right on. The result was that there was such an unbrotherly atmosphere and such a lack of love that these things could not be properly discussed. And when someone has already made up his mind that someone else must repent and apologize or otherwise the case can never be settled. It stands to reason that such a man can never be convinced. And yet that's the way the consistory continued to work with it. 
On the meeting of October 22, 1952, the following motion was passed. Motion made that this consistory maintains the sermon of Reverend H. DeWolf delivered Sunday evening, September 14, 1952, is partially heretical and not reformed as expressed in the grounds presented in the protest of the Reverend H. Hooksema, and this consistory condemns the sermon as such. Eight elders requested their negative vote to be recorded. I'm happy that one of those elders is in our midst tonight and can testify to the truth of many of these things which I'm telling you. On the next meeting, Monday, October 27th, the Reverend Uphoff presented to the consistory a statement of apology which I should make before the congregation. This was after recess. I asked the Reverend Uphoff whether he was the author of that apology. And he said no, that it was written by the Reverend Hooksema, who had charge of the meeting before the recess, and that it was given to him to read. The consistory decided that I should make that apology, and here again the elders requested their negative vote. To be registered. And I declined, by the way, I declined to make that apology that was written up for me. Then there was a motion to call in the fourth consistory, fourth church, as most of you know, in Grand Rapids, to call in the fourth consistory, and that in the meantime I be released from my duties as a minister, which meant that I was suspended. I was suspended, incidentally, for two days, from Monday night to Wednesday night. Wednesday night, October 29, the 4th Consistory met with our consistory, and that consistory objected to the fact that I had already been suspended, that the action had already been taken, and they objected to that, and rightfully so. They also asked to hear a motion from the minutes that clearly stated that the consistory was of the opinion that I was worthy of suspension. That motion did not exist. And so it was decided that uh, the uh, fourth consistory would go out and wait a little while, while our consistory would make that motion. And of course everyone expected that that motion would be made because the whole intention of calling in Fourth Church was, of course, to judge upon the case whether or not I was worthy of suspension. Hence, uh, our consistory was going to meet alone for just a few minutes, wouldn't take very long, perhaps ten minutes, in order to make that motion so that it could be duly recorded that I was worthy of suspension. Fourth consistory waited out in the hall. They waited there for almost an hour, and then they were told that they might as well go home, and the result was that such a motion, although it was made, was not voted on. 
And the reason that it was not voted on is very evident because it could never have been carried that night. For it soon became evident that there were elders there who stood on the side of the opposition who said, Brethren, we are not ready for that. We can't do that. And the result was that that motion was tabled. There was another motion that I should answer the protest of the Reverend Hooksima in writing, point for point. I hadn't done that. I had answered it generally and very briefly because I believe that in a case of this nature, it is the duty of the accuser to prove his accusation. And it's not the duty of the accused to prove that he is not guilty. I think that's the way of justice. But because of these elders, who were not able to vote, who felt that they weren't able to vote, with a view to my suspension, and who were very indefinite as far as the whole case is concerned, I consented to answer that protest of the Reverend Hooks of a point for point, which I also did. I objected, by the way, to the fact that the consistory reopened the whole case without rescinding its decision that the sermons, or that particular sermon, those statements were heretical. I asked the consistory to rescind that motion. I said, brethren, it is evident that that motion was made when many elders were not able to judge because now they ask me to come with more information in order that they may have light. And that means that those men were not able to vote on a motion whether or not those statements were heretical, and yet they did. They voted on that motion that the statements were heretical. But when it came to saying B, they voted to say A. But when it came to vote to say B, they said we're not ready to do that. And so I said, brethren, you must rescind, you must rescind that decision that you've made that those statements are heretical. And then you can reopen the case. Consistory refused to do that. Having no other course, I went ahead. Because I told the consistory that I would cooperate, I would do all within my power to work, to get this thing out of the way if possible, but that I had to do it under protest because of the conduct of the Reverend Hooksama, and because the consistory did not treat him because of that conduct. And so I went ahead. And I answered that protest, and I read it. And immediately after I read it, the Reverend Hooksom asked for the floor and read another paper, in which he concentrated on the word prerequisite. In his original protest, he had concentrated on the activity of man in conversion. On the next meeting of November 17, I was again asked to apologize. On the next meeting of November 24, I again declined. 
Then on December 1, meeting, the Reverend Hooksima sent a letter to the consistory suggesting that I be asked to, sub to submit to an examination. The Reverend Hooksima had suggested that once before, when he was present in the consistory. He suggested it now through writing, through a letter. The consistory decided to do this, asked me to submit to an examination to prove that I am reformed, which is always the purpose of such an examination. Before the examination was held, I asked to know the author of the questions that had been prepared. And uh, there was a motion made in the consistory that the committee would disclose whether or not it as a committee of two men had prepared the examination or whether someone else had done that for them. But that motion was defeated. And so the next article reads, and I'm quoting from the minutes, the Reverend DeWolf states that since the author of the questions is not being presented or acknowledged, he is concluding that they were prepared by one of the Protestants, namely the Reverend Hooksema to which he protests. And I understand that in a meeting in Grand Rapids, when the Reverend Hooksema was asked about that question, he said, I'll tell you a secret. I prepared those questions. He said there was nothing wrong with it. I again asked the consistory at that time to rescind its motion that those statements were heretical. I said to the consistory, please, let's go by the articles of the formula of subscription. The formula of subscription says when there is a reasonable basis of suspicion. But I said, brethren, you have no reasonable basis of suspicion. You have a decision. You have tried me. You have condemned me. You have said that my statements are heretical. Why do you want an examination? You are not proceeding upon the basis of reasonable suspicion, but you are proceeding upon the basis of a decision which you have made. And therefore you should rescind that motion and you should proceed and say we suspect that the Reverend Wolf is not reformed, is not Protestant reformed. We suspect him of that. Now let's examine him. But the consistory maintained that motion and refused to rescind it. Also before that examination I asked if my answers would be satisfactory, if then the case would be closed. And the consistory said to me, not by an official vote, and I'm sorry that I didn't ask for a vote on that because I'm sure that it would have gone through because there was no opposition to the answer which the Reverend Ophoff, one of the Protestants, gave when he said, of course, that will be the end of it. So the examination was held. I protested against it because they did not rescind that motion. Because I felt that they did not have a reasonable basis of suspicion. But the examination was held. And it was recorded. All the elders received a copy of the questions and the answers as I answered them. 
I had some notes with me, and I spoke uh, not from a prepared copy, but merely from some of the notes which I had prepared. On the meeting of January 19th, a motion was made that the consistory declare that the answers of the Reverend Wolf to the examination are satisfactory. The Reverend Hooksuma and the Reverend Ophoff objected to that upon the basis that I maintained my statements and that therefore they could not do anything with the examination. Now I want you to understand that. That was such a strange thing to me when that objection was brought up and to many of the elders that we said to them, how is that possible? That the examination, the answers cannot be used, that they are not satisfactory because I maintained my statements. I said, brethren, if I had not maintained my statements, there would have been no need of an examination. Wasn't it exactly because I maintained those statements according to my interpretation? Wasn't that exactly the reason why there had to be an examination? And now when you have an examination, you say, well, he maintains his statement so we can't do anything with the examination. That's a ring around the rosy. That's, that's a vicious circle. Why give a man an examination then? Of course, I maintain those statements. As I interpreted them, the consistory knew that. And when the examination is done, they say we can't do anything with it because he, he maintains his, his statements. It isn't satisfactory because he maintains his statements. And I maintain that that means that the examination wasn't honest. It wasn't honest. It wasn't given for the reason that there was a suspicion. It had some other purpose. On the meeting of September 16, that motion that my answers were satisfactory was passed. And that motion, that motion with an addition, read as follows, that we declare the answers of the Reverend Wolf to the examination to be satisfactory, and that the doctrine set forth in the answers of the Reverend Wolf is the true doctrine of Scripture and the Confession. That was passed by the consistory. On the meeting of February 23, a protest against this decision by the Reverend Hooksima was read, and the Reverend Opoff also reads his protest. These protests are against the consistory because of this stand which they took and are sent to the classes east. That's what happened in the consistory leading up to this event. And so the case finally went to the classes, which met in April and which met again in May. And I think most of you are acquainted with what took place on the classes, and I'm not going to go into detail about that. I would like to say this, that in the beginning there was a majority report 
the committee was divided that had the case to study the case. The majority report, which consisted of uh, three ministers, uh, was in favor, was favorable toward me, let, it, let me say it that way, and felt that those statements were not per se heretical. But that the classes did not adopt that majority report once again because of the pressure that was exerted by the Protestants there on the classes. And I have documental evidence also to prove that, which consists in a letter which was written by one of the Protestants to the, to the classes during its meeting. The classes decided it accepted neither the report of the majority committee nor of the minority committee, but it made a motion of its own, and the classes decided that those statements were heretical and that I should apologize and that if I didn't, I should be suspended. The elders who stood with me, no, the classes didn't say that. The classes said the consistory. The consistory should also apologize, and if it didn't, it should be suspended. It should be deposed. And so the case came back to the consistory once again. And then we have that meeting of June 1. We've heard a lot about that meeting of June 1. I don't have to say too much about it. The committee from classes, which had been appointed by classes to inform us of the decisions of classes, called that meeting. It was a special meeting. And that meeting was called for the special purpose of informing us of the decision of classes. However, on that meeting, after we had been informed, the consistory went into the case. And the result was that it was decided uh, to accept the advice of the classes. And this motion was passed under intimidation. I protested against that, and my protest is recorded in the minutes of the consistory. I'm sorry that I cannot produce those minutes because those minutes have been taken away from us. We don't even have a copy of any of the minutes that happened in the last book, at least, because that minute book was kept and was not given to us. We don't have even a duplicate of the minutes, and we're at a disadvantage from that point of view. But I heard those minutes read at the next meeting, and it is duly recorded in that that I objected to that vote that was taken there on that meeting. At that meeting also, the Reverend Hookson oppressed his advantage because there was a majority, majority in his favor, and this was just previous to the election of another elder who was to take the place of the elder of Mr. Van Allen, who passed away. We met again on June 15. We had a meeting on June 8, by the way. That meeting of June 8, the committee did not appear. But the committee called us together again on June 15th. 
and uh, told us that it had new information. And so we were met again as a, for a special meeting simply to hear the new information which that committee was to give us. So the committee gave us their information. And the information consisted in this, that the Reverend Voss, if you'll bear with me, I want to tell you about this. The Reverend Voss told us that the following morning, we were there on Monday evening, June 1, that the following morning at 3.30 in the morning, he woke up with a start, with a horrible realization, as he said himself, I quote him when he said, when I say that, with a horrible realization that they had not informed the consistory correctly and that therefore they must make amends and they must give the right information. And that information, according to the Reverend Voss, consisted in this, that by the decision of the consistory that evening of June 1, because of the decision of the classes, we were automatically out of our office. We should be told that. That was the purpose of the June 15 meeting. In spite of that fact, we were given another week. It was to be another meeting on June 22. That Sunday, I preached again. And I continued to function in my office, and so did the elders. So we come to the June 22 meeting. That's a very confusing meeting. I have never been in a meeting that was so much confusion as that meeting of, Jan of June 22. Very confusing. I believe that a letter has been sent out it was in my congregation. I don't know how much information you have of that. But a letter was sent out in respect to the votes that were recorded there on that meeting. I won't go into that now. I simply want to say that those uh, records of the vote are not correct. According to the best of my memory, and I'm sorry once again that we do not have the minutes and I'm afraid that in this instance, the minutes do not record exactly what happened there. As is evident from the fact that there were 24 elders and ministers who could vote, there were three who did not vote, including myself, because I never voted in anything in this whole case. There were two others on the side of the opposition who did not vote. An elder and the Reverend Hanko did not vote. Eleven voted against the first motion, which can only mean that which can which only can mean that there were be, that there would be ten in favor of it. Now it's possible that the chairman later, after the vote was taken, added his vote so that you get a vote of eleven to eleven. I don't know. It's possible, too, perhaps, that I could have added my own vote. But I didn't vote in those matters. 
We were told that evening that we had no right to vote. We were out of the picture, so to speak. We insisted that we did have the right to vote, the elders at least, and they did vote. We maintain that if the majority voted and the minority was not satisfied with that, even with the fact that they couldn't vote, they had but one way, and that was the way of protest, and not the way of walking out. At that meeting, I also presented an apology, and I think you've heard that. That apology was accepted for information and no more. At that meeting, the Reverend Hooksima walked out, finally, and he said he would never come back. And he also appealed to the elders who stood with him to walk out with him. Some of them stood up, the chairman stood up, the Reverend Hankel stood up. The Reverend Hooksima was already gone, he was sitting right at the door, and he walked out. And then one of the elders said, uh, you brethren mustn't do that, you mustn't run away, you mustn't walk out. Let's talk about these things, they're very serious. They concern the Church of Jesus Christ, they concern the unity of our church here, and you certainly shouldn't walk out, you should talk about these things. The result was that we talked for a while, the men went and sat down again, we talked for a while. But they gave us to understand that unless we would do what they demanded, that this would be the end. And so, the next day, there was another meeting of which we were not informed, neither I nor the elders that stood with me. We were not informed, and I am told that not even half of the consistory was present in that meeting. And in that meeting we were, I was personally suspended, and the elders were deposed, although we had no opportunity at all to present our case to the consistory that had been called in. And that consistory, by the way, was very hesitant to approve that meeting, and by the way, did not approve that meeting, and certainly did not express itself on the legality of that meeting. We maintain that that action was illegal, and really the fault of it lies with the classes when it went beyond its jurisdiction. And I would also like to make plain now that I did not re refuse, I did not refuse to make an apology. And that also the elders did not refuse to make an apology. But the question was, what kind of an apology? That's what the question hinged on. And I think I could say that the elders and myself were still willing to make an apology. in as far as we are able to do that. 
But we cannot say that those statements as such are heretical, that they must be condemned per se. We are convinced that that is not true. And to say that would simply mean that we go against our conscience. We feel also that it's very unjust to demand that of us. The people in Fuller Avenue particularly know my preaching. And they know that I have never taught any Arminianism. And I am sure that if I were Arminian, it would have been revealed long before this time. I've been a minister in Fuller Avenue almost nine years. I have, by a public statement, and repeatedly in the consistory and classes stated that I reject the heresy that the Protestants find in these statements. I repudiate that heresy, which they find. I have admitted that they can be misinterpreted. I have said that I wouldn't use them again. And on that last meeting of June 22, I pleaded for tolerance. I said, brethren, bear with me. Won't you please bear with me? I can't before God, I can't say those statements are in themselves heretical. I've told you I wouldn't use them again. But I can't say that. Won't you bear with me? Maybe, maybe it'll become evident to me too sometime that that's true. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so now. And I can't say it. The demand was that I say that those statements are per se heretical. It was to no avail. But I haven't been stubborn. If I could be convinced that those statements were in themselves heretical, I would make the apology. Certainly would be the easier course for me, far easier than the course which the Lord has set for me now. I have no other choice than to follow it, as much as I dread it, and I have no pleasure in it. If I could, I would have done that. But I maintain that the Protestants have not left those statements alone, even though they took them out of the context. They have put them in their own context. You must interpret statements. All statements need interpretation. And they have taken those statements out of my context and they have put them in their own context and they have made them heretical. I cannot see in anything in this all, and I'm sorry that I must say that, I can't see in this all anything else but an attempt to make me a heretic. And I think it's terrible. When I look back on what has happened in my congregation, 
in the consistory, in the light of what is happening in the whole denomination, I can see that I must be the victim to justify the unfounded suspicion that many of our ministers are not any more Protestant Reformed. This suspicion and distrust, brothers and sisters, this suspicion and distrust, which has been brewing for some time, has led to the deplorable condition which you find in our churches today. The result has been that it becomes well nigh impossible to preach because of the cloud of suspicion that has been placed over one's head. In my own congregation, many ministers refuse to preach. They refused to preach there because they felt that they were in jeopardy of their life. They were afraid. They made such remarks as, I will not stick out my neck. I don't want to preach for a bunch of ministers and professors. The result was that the ministers who did preach there were criticized. I already mentioned the Reverend Caminga. It happened as late as, I don't know exactly when, but very shortly before the split, that the Reverend Lovers preached in our congregation and the Reverend Alpoff refused to shake hands with him because he mentioned something about a conditional sentence. The result was, of course, that the preaching in the Protestant Reformed churches has been put into a certain system. Your preaching has to answer to that system there's no room for any disagreement as far as any opinion is concerned anymore. The worst of it is that you are prejudged before you ever begin upon the basis of many other things which should never enter into the picture. And having been judged in the cloud of suspicion above your head, you preach to a critical audience people with pencils in their hands and paper ready to write a statement which they might hold against you. I submit that under such circumstances no man can preach. No one. It's only then by the grace of God that I could climb on that pulpit in Fuller Avenue. If I had done according to my own feeling, I would have resigned. I don't know how sometimes I did preach with all these things as they were. God gave me grace, and God gave me grace to be here tonight. God will give me grace to go on because it's his cause. It's his church. It's not the church of any man. I don't care who the man may be. 
It's the church of Jesus Christ. And I love that church of Jesus Christ. And I must stand for that church of Jesus Christ. Even when I must stand over against one whom I have highly respected in the past. And of whom I have learned much. It's not because it's a personal matter at all. It may be. It's a matter of the truth. A matter of the word of God. And a matter of the church of Jesus Christ. And in that light I want to stand in the judgment of God someday. And I want you all who are here tonight to be my witnesses when these things shall be revealed. As far as those statements are concerned, my apology has stated very plainly what I did not mean by it. My time is so far spent. I do want to say something about it, however. I want to show you the context in the first place in which that first statement appeared. As the Reverend Canningham mentioned, it was in that text of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And I preached on the sufficiency of the word of God. You remember that Abraham and that rich man have a little discussion together there. And that finally this rich man desires that Abraham will send Lazarus to his brothers. And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then this rich man says, no, but if if someone from the dead would go, then they would believe. Abraham says, if they believe not Moses and the prophets, they will not believe, even though one should rise from the dead. And in that connection, I made plain to the congregation that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, and that gospel comes with the demand to believe, and it comes with that demand to everyone who hears it, for the demand of faith, of repentance, And faith must be preached to everyone promiscuously, that's our confessions. That then those who hear the preaching of the gospel are placed in the crisis. And no man can walk away without having taken a stand over against that preaching. And every man must know, and he must carry away this assurance that God has declared to him that if he believes, he will be saved. And that, therefore, when he rejects that gospel, he is condemned because of his own unbelief. That's the gospel. That's Protestant reformed. It has always been. It always has been. That's what I meant. I meant that no one should go out of my audience that night and say, well, the Lord didn't mean me when the gospel was preached. He didn't mean me for one reason or for another, whatever it may be. It wouldn't make any difference whether I believed or not. I wouldn't be saved anyway. Maybe I'm a reprobate. I wouldn't be saved anyway then if I'm a reprobate. And in that connection, I made the statement, God promises every one of you. And it certainly is very clear what I meant by that. 
that God sets it right before them very, very plainly. That you can take God at his word. That what God says is true. If a man believes, he will surely be saved. As far as that second statement is concerned, it appeared in a context, as I already told you, of entering into the kingdom of God. I find that what the Protestants do with that statement to be far more pathetic than what they do with the other. For the simple reason that in that whole sermon I wasn't talking about any initial entrance into the kingdom of all. Nothing about it at all. I was preaching a preparatory sermon. I was preaching to the congregation that was preparing to go to the Lord's Supper. And I was comparing that Lord's Supper to the entering into the kingdom. Which I believe it certainly is. Because we daily enter into the kingdom and that's what I was talking about. And I said from that point of view, that conversion to repent to turn away from our sins, to be as little children is the prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God. From the subjective, personal point of view that we are always called in the measure that we enter to humble ourselves, to turn away from sin, from the world, to the things which are of God. That's the prerequisite which I preached of conversion to enter into the kingdom of God. And now I thank you very much, brothers and sisters, for your patience with me. I could tell you many, many more things. If I've said anything that is not right, I hope you will forgive me. I haven't said anything that is not right to the best of my knowledge. I've told you the truth. And I can only leave this in the Lord's hand. And I trust that the Lord is going to do what's right with our churches too. I have confidence the Lord has led us in the past. And the Lord will also lead us in the future. We should not run ahead of the Lord. Remember that this whole thing concerns not a man. Not me either. The Lord's cause is not dependent on men. That's Arminianism. That's practical Arminianism. The Lord's cause is not dependent on man. God will take care of his church. And in that confidence we proceed. Thank you. Before we go into our question hour, which will follow this singing, I would like to make a few announcements. In the first place, that if you have any questions in regard to this issue, uh, will you kindly, for the sake of good order, put them on paper? Uh, the, there will be a few men who will collect these questions on the aisle, the outside rows. So if you'll just pass your questions to the two center aisles here. We'll have men after a while to pick them up. And Reverend DeWolf will try to answer these questions. Uh, before we do so, uh, we would like to take an offering 
to cover the expenses uh, connected with this meeting. And while this offering is received, I'd like to have you sing number 24 of the Psalter. <clears throat> Undoubtedly, on entering this building, you have received a copy of these questions presented by what is here stated, Committee for Protestant Reformed Action. Uh, this is a group evidently who sides with the party of opposition. I wish to state that one of the members of this committee offered apology for passing out these papers on these premises without uh, the courtesy of asking our permission. But uh, we do not object to these questions as such. I think Reverend DeWolf will be very happy to answer them. And so I'll just turn the meeting over to Reverend DeWolf once more to answer these questions or whatever other questions we may receive. As far as these questions are concerned, it appears to me that they are made in sequence, which means that there are many leading questions here. Which means that if I answer one, I'm already, I'm already answering the other. And that whatever answer I give to the one will reflect on the answer that I give to the other, to the next. Of course, you understand that's not the purpose of having questions here. The purpose certainly was not that somebody would come here with a list of questions prepared in the form of a document to express opinions, that which these questions do. I'm willing to answer questions. I'm going to answer these too. But I find here an evidence of the type of thing that's been going on in our churches, which I do not feel is very ethical. But I'll answer these questions as best as I can. Try to make it plain to you. You have a copy, I trust, most of you. Many of you do. Were not the sermons preached by you on April 15, 1951 and September 21, 1952, condemned by the consistory as heretical and partly heretical? Of course, that question is not stated correctly because, as you know from what I've said tonight, the statements, the two statements and not the sermons, were condemned. And the sermons were condemned as partially heretical because of the two statements. It was the question of the two statements, not the sermons. Were those decisions ever rescinded by the consistory by a two-thirds majority? I also told you that those decisions were not rescinded. I told you that tonight already. Of course, we're being led along. In the examination to which you were subjected on the basis of the formula of subscription, did you not maintain those statements which you made and which were condemned by the consistory? I certainly did, as I interpreted them. That's the way I maintained them as I interpreted them, and not as the Protestants interpreted them, I repudiated that heresy. Did you ever retract those heretical statements? 
seems to me it's pretty evident that I don't say those statements are heretical. That's a question like, did you, uh, are you still beating your wife? You try to answer that. That's what this question is. Did you ever retract those heretical statements? I do not hold that they are heretical. I did not retract those statements. How then can you say that you ever apologized for those statements? You see, that's what we're being led up to. I apologize for those statements insofar as I did not clearly state what I meant and thereby might become or would be the occasion for somebody misinterpreting them. That's how I apologized for them. Did not the consistory patiently labor with you for two years in order to induce you to retract those statements and apologize for them? The consistory labored with me for about that time, not all the time. There was a time that that the consistory had taken its stand and uh, there was quite a lapse of time there uh, before the case was taken up again with Mr. Yonker when he was not satisfied. But uh, in general, yes, we labored together. The consistory labored with me. Did not the consistory tell you that you might make such an apology in your own words? Did they not even suggest that you might make such an apology in the course of your sermon? That's correct. They did, as long as I would say that the statements were heretical. I could do it any way I wanted to there. Not first. First, the apologies were written out for me. And then it was suggested that I could do it in a sermon, but according to what I had received. And that meant that I had to say that those statements were heretical. Did at the classes the committee of the majority report not make a serious attempt to explain those heretical statements in a good sense? I think they did. I think they did a pretty good job of it. Did not the same committee admit at the classes that they failed in this attempt? They did not. Only one member. Today, two members of that committee still refuse to admit that. Two members of that committee voted against the decision of classes. The Reverend Lovers was the only one who made a point to explain to the classes that he had been converted. Did not the classes unanimously decide that the statements in question are literally heretical? Yes, but of course literally here means the way they interpret them. Also the way classes interpreted them. They accepted the interpretation of the Protestants. That becomes literal. I said before that I maintain that statements need interpretation. I might tell you, for example, that on the classes when, during the discussion of this thing, statements were taken out of the standard bearer, were read, and the Reverend Hooksima was asked, didn't you say this? Didn't you say something like this in the past? And he said, you can't just take a statement, give me that, give me the context. He said, I want to know how I said that. At the same time, he was judging me without any context.
Question 11. Yet you and your reporters, of course we didn't get exactly to where we should be in question 10. That yet is a little bit out of place now. Yet you and your supporters still maintain that you are not schismatic. That's right, we do. Who determines whether you are schismatic or not? The classes. The synod. Finally, I mean, if you're talking about it from the church political point of view, of course, and I trust that's the meaning here, do you determine this with your supporters, or does the consistory and the classes officially determine your status in this respect? Well, I answered that. The twelve, have you any proof from the church order that the classes might not have advised a course of action such as they did? Did not the consistory have the right to reject this advice if they so decided? And did not the situation in the first church require such a course of action as the classes advised? Excuse me a minute, I have a church order here. First question there is, have you any proof from the church order that the classes might not have advised a course of action such as they did? I do. I do. I have proof from the church order that the classes have no business whatever to advise any action, because the classes have no request for any action, and the classes have no jurisdiction over the case beyond deciding whether the consistory was correct when it said that those statements or my answers to the questions was satisfactory. That's the only thing the classes had to judge on. Not about any action of any kind. That was a matter of the consistory. And I appeal to Article 30 of the Church Order. In these assemblies, ecclesiastical matters only shall be transacted, and that in an ecclesiastical manner. In major assemblies, only such matters shall be dealt with as could not be finished in minor assemblies or such as pertain to the churches of the major assembly in common. Now notice, such things as could not be finished in minor assemblies, the question about whether I should apologize or the elders should apologize was not considered at all in our consistory. That belonged to our consistory. That did not belong to the classes. And the classes took it over and decided it for us. That's hierarchy. I think that answering that first question answers all the rest of them there, too, in number 12. And I'll answer that last part. Did not the situation in First Church require such a course of action as the classes advised? That isn't the question. That isn't the question at all. The classes have no business advising anything. And if the classes has no business to advise anything, you can't talk a good by saying, but, but after all, it's all right for them to go beyond their jurisdiction now because uh, the situation in Fuller Avenue demanded it. That's begging the question. That's simply begging the question. But I can say to you, too, that the situation in the first church did not require such advice and not the action which was advised by the classes. Question 13. At the meeting of the consistory of June 1, 1953, did not the Reverend Voss and the rest of the classical committee that was appointed to make the case pending with the consistory plead with you in love? Yes, that's right, he did. 
14. Did not one of the elders supporting you try to block the action of the consistory by making a motion to adjourn immediately after the committee had spoken, although it was only a little after 9 o'clock? When you have no more business to do, my friends, when you have no more business to do, then the usual thing is to have a motion to adjourn. And we were called together that night to hear, to hear, simply to hear, and be informed of the decision of classes. We were not called together to take any action or anything of that nature. It was a special meeting so that this committee which had been appointed by the classes might inform us what was the decision of the classes. The consistory was not legally called together to treat the case at all. And so the business was finished. When the committee had given us their report, had told us what the classes had to say, the business was finished. It was perfectly in order that there should be a motion to adjourn. Uh, did not the elders, did one of the elders not try again to prevent action by the consistory by making a motion to table the motion, to adopt the advice of the classes and to act accordingly? That motion was made, yes. And uh, perhaps you can say prevent action by the consistory, yes. I think so. You know, I might explain something to you, and I want these things to be above board. I see somebody shake their head when I said that the business was over, when the committee from classes had informed us the decision of the classes and that it was perfectly proper to adjourn. Anybody knows that that's true. But I wouldn't want you to think that the elders who stood with me wanted to vote on that issue that night. They didn't. And the reason they didn't want to vote on that issue was the very same reason for which the Reverend Hooksema wanted to vote on that issue. If that's politics on one side, it's politics on the other. And it's pretty hard to keep yourself free from those things. Especially when you have a consistory that stands like this so that it all depends on whether all the members are present, just who's going to have the majority and what decision is going to be made. And I have always maintained in my ministry and every consistory in which I've worked that if we had an issue that was so close that it differed by one vote or so, that it was if it was an issue of any consequence, I always said to the consistory, brethren, I advise you, don't take action. We're not right. You're not right. When you have a body that's so equally divided, you're not right to take action. And any action that you take is going to have some bad consequences. The Reverend Hooksema wanted that motion to be made on the June 1 meeting. Why? Because he had the majority at that time. I know that isn't nice, but that's the truth. And that's why we didn't want the motion to be made. That's very candid. Uh, Sixteen. I don't want you to get the impression that I'm mad when I talk that way. I get a little uh, excited. I, I do that when I preach, too. Vehemence doesn't mean, doesn't mean anger. Was it not, 
legally decided by a majority vote of the consistory at that same meeting of June 1st, 1953, to adopt the advice of the classes and to act accordingly. Yes, it was, under my protest, which is recorded in the minutes, I protested that, that still stands. That thing was not just decided without any protest, and uh, I protested against it because of the intimidation. The elders were told that if they dared to vote against that motion, they it simply meant that they weren't Protestant Reformed, and, well, of course, it... Uh, it sweeps a man off his feet and it puts him under a cloud. And it doesn't leave a man liberty anymore. After that motion was passed, I'll tell you something. After that motion was passed, one of the elders who voted in favor of it, he said, well, now we voted that those statements are heretical. Now we have to vote on the rest yet, don't we? And, and they said, why, no, man, you voted for the whole business. You also voted that, that, that uh, they're worthy of suspension and, and they have to apologize or be suspended and so forth. You voted for that, too. The man didn't even know he had voted for that. Eighteen. Was therefore not the whole matter settled? Did I skip one? Seventeen. Did not this same decision mean that either you should apologize or be suspended and deposed from office? Yes, but it didn't say when. And it left room to talk for a while to see what kind of an apology we should have. Unless you have a hierarchy of classes that binds you. Was uh, 18, was therefore not the whole matter settled principally by this decision of the consistory? And were not you by that decision placed in a state of guilt? Perhaps, but you don't hang the man right away, you know. Even if a man is placed in the state of guilt, the execution usually isn't uh, uh, there immediately. And, of course, there were many questions that still should have been talked about. And uh, the state of guilt was due, of course, to the fact that the classes hierarchically set the consistory in a straitjacket where it couldn't do anything else. From that point of view, it's not the state of guilt either. Nineteen, at the consistory meeting of June 15, where again the classical committee was present against our wishes. This committee, uh, let me tell you that, continued to function as an advisory committee against its own mandate from classes. There is nothing in the minutes of classes that states that this committee should serve as an advisory committee. It was appointed merely to meet with us once, very plain, to call a meeting, to meet with us and inform us of the decision of classes. That's, that's the, uh, the, what you find in the classical record. That committee kept on coming back. And on June 15, when it was very plain that on June 22, the vote might be different, it was decided on June 15 that that committee should be there on June 22 when the majority was still in power on the other side. What one am I reading, please? 19? 
at the consistory meeting of June 15, where again the classical committee was present, did the Reverend Hooksima not ask that the installation of the new elder would be postponed until this matter was settled, seeing that he could not possibly know anything officially about the case and besides was a brother-in-law of the Reverend DeWolf. Of course, the Reverend Hankel has a brother-in-law that uh, doesn't worship with him in Christian high school today. I don't know whether that means anything. I've seen a lot of brother-in-laws that didn't agree with one another. But it is true, the Reverend Hooksima made a motion that it be uh, postponed. But the nice thing about that is that when it was said that it'll take a two-thirds majority, the Reverend Hooksima said, oh no, you can do that with a majority vote. And shall I tell you something? That if that were possible, to do it by a majority vote, these other motions that I talked about would have been rescinded. At the same time that the consistory okayed my examination, they would have rescinded those other motions. But then it took a two-thirds majority vote. And as long as I've been a minister in Fuller Avenue, the Reverend Hooksima has always recommended a two-thirds majority vote for rescinding any motion. Always did. On this particular case, the Reverend Hooksima was ready to receive a majority vote, not a two-thirds. The consistory decided that it had been decided to install that man. There was no good reason why he should not be installed. And that he didn't know anything about it? There aren't very many people living in Grand Rapids who have heard of the classes and have attended them personally and have had the documents in their hands that don't know very much about it. And if the man didn't know enough about it, then it certainly was proper that the consistory would have given him time to investigate before uh, they would take any action. When the man is in office, he certainly has the right to have his voice. And if it isn't ready... The matter isn't ready for him, that he should have time to consider it. I think anybody realizes that that's justice and right. But of course he was my brother-in-law. Twenty. When the opposition was against this suggestion to postpone the installation of the new elder, and when on June 22 that new elder voted against the decision of the classes contrary to the consistory decision of June 1, was he not to blame himself for his own deposition? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And I don't know how uh, these brethren who still call themselves the consistory of the First Protestant Reformed Church, how in the world they will ever straighten this with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they had a man in office for 48 hours and then deposed him. I don't, under, I don't understand how they're ever going to do that. I don't understand that. 21. At the meeting of June 22, 1953, was it not illegal for you and for those that supported you to vote in your own and their case, since not only did you not have the right to vote, in your own case, but also by the action of the consistory of June 1st, you and your supporters were placed in a state of guilt. Yeah, that's of course uh, assuming that the things which are used here as arguments are true. 
and I've said that they aren't. This merely assumes, of course, that we have no right to vote in our own case. Of course, I told you before, I didn't vote at all, so this doesn't affect me. I didn't vote. I think I could have voted in the case of the elders. I think so. And certainly the elders had a right to vote in my case. It was their case. It was the case of their minister. It seems to me that if, no, if somebody didn't have a right to vote, it would be the Protestants. It seems to me that they wouldn't have the right to vote. 22. Besides, had it not been decided by the consistory and a legal meeting... Yeah, this goes on now, you see. Besides, had it not been decided by the consistory and a legal meeting on June 1st to adopt the advice of the classes and to act accordingly. Well, I explained what happened there. How that happened under intimidation. That didn't happen cleanly, correctly. And would it therefore not have required a two-thirds majority of the consistory to rescind this action of June 1. And did you not ignore all this and trample all law and order underfoot when you, nevertheless, with your supporters, voted against the action of the classes and its advice to apologize or be suspended and deposed? Just a minute. I thought the questioner here himself admitted that the consistory had the right to to reject the advice of the classes. I believe I read that. Didn't I read that here somewhere? Which one? Twelve. Have you any proof that the church order from the church order that the classes might not have advised a course of action such as they did and did not the consistory have yeah, did not the consistory have the right to reject this advice if they so decide? Here in this question And did you not ignore all this and trample all law and order underfoot when you nevertheless with your supporters voted against the action of the consistory? I mean of the classes. Yeah, if it was the consistory. But it's the classes and its advice to apologize or be suspended and deposed. Of course not. We had the right to reject that advice of the classes. The point is that we never did fully reject it. That's the whole thing there. As I said before, neither I nor the elders refused to apologize. We were not in favor in, on the June 1 meeting to submit to the hierarchy of classes that you had to do one or the other and there was nothing else to be done anymore. Because classes had no business to come with that advice. We didn't say at all we weren't ready, we weren't willing to talk about an apology. I, I submitted an apology. And I'm sure the elders would submit an apology in as far as that was possible. And I would like to say this too. Suppose, I don't believe it's true, suppose that here we trampled underfoot the decision of classes in the consistory, that then there is still only one thing that a minority can do, 
and that is that minority can protest to the classes and maintain the peace and unity in the meantime, and they certainly have no right to walk out and make a separation. That they certainly don't have the right to do. It makes no difference what anybody does. You don't have the right to walk out and, de- and take the law of Jesus Christ in your own hands, in the church of Jesus Christ. You don't have the right to do that. By voting against the advice of the classes and the decision of the consistory June 1 that you should apologize, did you not declare yourself worthy of suspension and deposition? I think that's been answered. Seeing then that your suspension and deposition was principally decided upon by the advice of classes, notice that please, seeing then that your suspension and deposition was principally decided upon by the advice of classes in its hierarchy, It doesn't say that here, of course. And by the decision of the consistory of June 1, and by your own action at the consistory meeting of June 22, was it not entirely correct that the consistory did not notify you of its meeting of June 23 because you belong to to the consistory no longer? I refuse to try to help the opposition find a basis for its action. If that's what they want me to do in answering this question, to approve their action, I can't do it. We belong to the consistory no longer. Will you explain to me why then they took a motion to depose us and to suspend us? Just imagine. We were already deposed and suspended because of the action of June 22 and on June 23, They have a motion that we're worthy of suspension and deposition. Just imagine that. But they have it for. Didn't need it anymore then. They didn't have to meet on June 22 for anything anymore, or June 23. Is there any ground in the church order for the contention that those, whether office bearers or members, have to be present at the consistory meeting that exercises discipline over them? I don't suppose so. It isn't a question either whether a man cannot be deposed or suspended in his absence. That's possible too. If he doesn't want to come to the consistory meeting, you usually don't go over there and grab him by the collar and bring him in. You take action against him then. But I think as a rule, ethically, in the Church of Jesus Christ, we usually notify the people who are going to be acted upon. I think we do. And I think especially when another consistory is called in to judge that that consistory ought to also hear uh, the defense of the brethren who are involved and who are accused. I think so. If you want to do things right, I think that's the proper way. I know when I have trouble in the congregation and between people, between man and wife, and you know that's bad. I know you all know that, those of you that are married. You know that's bad. I find that the worst policy of any that any minister can follow is to talk to one and not to the other. Or to talk to the one in the absence of the other. And he should talk to them both together. That's the way to do it. And at least if he can't meet them both together, he ought to tell each one that he's going to hear the story of the other one. Then you can judge. 
Seeing then that you have acted against... Yeah, there's a conclusion, of course. Seeing then that you have acted against the advice of the classes and against the decisions of the consistory of June 1, 22, 23, seeing that you have taken the law in your own hands and refused to submit to your suspension and deposition, have you not lost all right of appeal to a major assembly? And do you still imagine that your delegates will be seated at the next session of classes? You know, after all, that's not for me to answer, is it? That's not for me to answer. We'll see what happens. I don't know what the Lord does. I know that you can limit man to a certain book, rules, but I know that God can still work miracles. With all my logic, I can't figure out what God's going to do next October. I have my ideas. I have my ideas of what will happen. And I have a reason for that, too. In the light of what has happened in the past. I make no predictions. I will go to that classes and leave it in the Lord's hand, whether I will be seated there or whether I won't. And then, with the Lord, we'll go on from there. 27. Were you suspended because of your heretical statements or because you refused to apologize for them? That's a nice question, isn't it? I suppose if there had never been heretical statements according to them, because here again you have heretical statements, if there had never been uh, heretical statements, you realize, of course, that there would never have been any need of an apology. I don't know. Maybe both. I really don't know. I wish I had that letter with me. I suppose that it's stated in the official letter that was sent to me why I was suspended, but I don't know. And I don't know that it makes much difference. Not as long as the action which calls for an apology is a hierarchical one. To me, that makes very little difference. I'm sorry you understand that I, I have to simply answer these questions as they go along. If I had a little time to sit down for a, a half a day or so and to uh, work on this, I could perhaps have given you many be much better answers than what I did. I'll have to apologize for that. Reverend Wolf, I appreciate your patience and uh, you trying to explain in detail, but we won't get through if you're not a little more brief. All right, time. all right. We have lots of questions, yes. If you still maintain that your statements are not wrong, why did you make why did you make them what do you mean? Why did you make them apologize? Why did you make oh why did you make those apologies that you made? In the interest of trying to keep the Church of Jesus Christ together, to do all that was in my power, if I was the occasion that somebody had stumbled, even though I was that unwittingly I will apologize for it. How do you interpret your statements? Do you maintain those statements as confessional? Why do you not apologize for a statement that classes condemned as heretical? 
Why do... What, uh, must I maybe better answer one at a time, huh? Oh, my. I interpreted my statements. I don't think I have to do that again. Do you maintain those statements as confessional? Oh, that's such a... You know, that really implies that everything a minister says, and when you pick it out of his sermon, that you that, that minister is supposed to be able to go to the confessions, and he's supposed to be able to show you. Now, right here is where it says that. That's the way it teaches in the confessions. I maintain that they are not in conflict with the confessions, and in that sense, they are confessions. Why do you not apologize for a statement that class is condemned as heretical? Why? Because class has said it? Is that why I must apologize? Why do you call man's conversion a prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God? Is conversion not a fruit of faith? Certainly is. Of course it is. It's a fruit of faith. And when I talked about a prerequisite, I was talking about a prerequisite from the point of view of our subjective consciousness as we approach that kingdom of God and as we are called constantly to leave the world and enter into that kingdom of God more and more in all our life as we constantly walk in sanctification. That's also the fruit of faith. But when the Lord works that in us, then one thing is before the other, and the one thing is prerequisite to the other, and it's all the fruit of faith. Is not... Oh, yeah. How then can conversion be a prerequisite or condition? I answered that. How can you call yourself Protestant Reformed when you stated in one of your sermons that our act of conversion is prerequisite to enter into the kingdom of God. I answered that. How can you call the action of the consistory of the first Protestant Reformed Church schismatic when they were acting upon the advice of classes? Because, of course, as I said uh, in the first place, that advice of classes was hierarchical. Now, that's not the fault of that, of that group. That's true. But because they did it in a secret meeting without notifying us of their actions at all. And because they walked out and created the separation. If you did not mean to say what you have said in those two statements, why don't you retract them as they surely are not Protestant Reformed? That's the judgment of the questioner. I have said that, that you can interpret them in the Protestant Reformed way. If you feel you are wronged, why do you not walk the right way and appeal to class? We have every intention of doing that. Don't you know that if you repent, there will be rejoicing in heaven and the devil will hang his head in shame? I don't care to answer that question. Is there true brotherly love outside of the truth? No. There isn't, because the truth implies brotherly love. And when you have anything that is called the truth and where the brotherly love is not present, then you may question whether it's the truth. Do you deny that the statement, God promises every one of you that if you believe you shall be saved, emphasizes a general conditional promise? Well, it seems to me that we've had things like that before. The whole thing is, of course, let me say that very briefly, that what has been made of that statement is this, that I say that the promise of God is general and conditional. I've never taught anything like that in my life. 
But I maintain that there are promises of God, which God presents to us in a conditional way, and by which those promises become very particular when they are preached promiscuously. And I think that's it. Well, let me read something to you from the from the uh, writings of the man who, who's protesting against me, who's taking action against me. Also in this article, this is a quotation from the Reverend Hooksima. Also in this article, reference is certainly made to the external calling through the gospel by which all who hear the gospel are called. That's, by the way, Canons 3-4, Article 8. Note, here we confess, therefore, that all who hear the gospel are earnestly called. Notice carefully that according to the very words of our confession, this means nothing else but that the particular or conditional promise and the command to repent and believe is earnestly meant for all. If before an audience of 1,000 people we proclaim that whosoever believeth in Jesus Christ and him crucified shall be saved, then this is earnestly and seriously meant for all. All, and if the command to repent and believe comes to all those 1,000 hearers in the name of God, then again this is earnestly and seriously meant for all. Not one among them has the right to live in unbelief and in an unconverted and unrepentant state before God. You cannot and may not just read this article as the Reverend Cakespeare would have us believe. As many as are offered the grace of Christ, it is offered to them well-meaning from God. And yet that's what my statement is supposed to mean today. That is something entirely different. The confession here means, according to its very explanation of the calling, to as many as the particular and conditional promise of the gospel is proclaimed. With the command to repent and believe, it is proclaimed in all earnestness and truth. Let that be my answer. Why were new locks put on the Fuller Avenue Church? <laughs> May I have a drink of Why were new locks put on the Fuller Avenue Church while you folks had no more right to the building than the unfaithful, uh, the faithful group? I honestly didn't do that on purpose. I'm sorry. I don't believe that, of course, that they are the faithful group, but I mean, I didn't, I misspoke myself. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting story, too. But our janitor went on vacation, and he gave the keys to someone on the opposite side of the opposition. And when our building committee asked for those keys, uh, then, of course, they refused to give them up. And uh, our own consistory was locked out one evening, and they had to wait until someone came with a key to let them in. Now, that's the question. Who has the right to that building? But in our Articles of Incorporation, it states very plainly that the possession and whatever else belongs with the building, that that shall be determined in any case only by the majority of the congregation, and the majority of the congregation stands with me today. If the opposition does not believe them, believe that, let them challenge it. Upon that basis, we maintain the buildings. I got the impression last week that several of our ladies in First Church attend the RBI. Would you say that there is something wrong with that? Is it not equally true that some of our young people attend Calvin? And are not both institutions Christian reformed? 
Yeah, I think so. They're both they're both the same. I didn't know very much about those ladies attending either, but I suppose there are ladies attending the RBI. We have ladies that attend class in the YMCA, and we have a lot of students, of course, that graduate from Calvin College, which is also an institution of Christian reform instruction. I don't know whether that makes the RBI a lot worse. I got the impression last week that the English Men's Society and First Church asked several Calvin men to speak for them in their after recess program. What was the matter with our own ministry? Well, they were fine and they spoke too, but there aren't enough of them. And so, besides, the society needed to have some light and they decided to have speakers. And they decided also to have speakers who could speak on their own particular topic with which they were very well acquainted. And so they called on some of the professors from Calvin College and asked them whether they would talk on some subject that related to their whatever they taught. And they also called on the ministers in Grand Rapids to speak for them, which also happened. Why do you not apply the last paragraph on page 12 of the Reformed Guardian to yourselves? Would the brethren but return from this their way of error, then the schism could be healed and peace and unity restored to the churches we love. How easily you could show that love by apologizing for your literal literally heretical statements openly and without equivocation. It's, of course, always the question of truth and justice. That's the question. If I am wrong in not apologizing, then the Lord will take care of that. But then I'm doing it in my error, I assure you. I'm doing it in my error. Can a minister at any time make such statements as those of the Reverend Wolf and then say as a proper apology, I didn't mean to teach heresy? I could answer that question by saying, if, after all, it is not a matter of merely two statements, how are you going to clear up the fact that a minister preaches heresy by asking him to apologize for merely two statements? On what basis, since you have never protested, neither given notice of protest against their actions, and since none of them was under discipline, can you call the legal consistory represented by the Reverends Huxima, Hanko, and G. Statsismatic? This question evidently has, the questioner has a lot of information, uh, which is not correct. Uh, we certainly uh, have uh, contacted those brethren but they have separated themselves from us. We called a general consistory meeting and they refused to meet with us. They walked out, not we. They walked out. They have cut themselves off from the first Protestant Reformed consistory and they are maintaining themselves. That's why we have to go to classes. We can't do anything with those brethren anymore. Is it true, as was reported to us, at least that's the way I understood the speaker last week, that the classical decision was without a descending vote? I presume that means the, the uh, final decision of the class. That certainly was not without a descending vote. Even in the document uh, which we have of Reverend Voss and the information he gave to the consistory, he himself said he thought there were four descending votes 
And I am personally of the opinion that there were more. Was the apology you presented to the consistory different than what you said to the congregation on previous Sunday evening? Not essentially, no. In my sermon in the evening, I meant it more as a statement. I didn't mean that that would take everything out of the way. I thought the consistory could consider that and accept it as an apology if they wanted to, or I would restate it again. But uh, essentially it has the same contents. I'd like to read them both to you, but it's going to take too much time. Seems to me you've answered this. It's practically the same question. The same as question 26? Since you have acted against the advice of the classes and against the decisions of the consistory of June 1, 22-23, since you have taken the law in your own hands and refused to submit to your suspension and deposition, have you not lost all right of appeal or made her assembly? Yes, that's right, I answered that one. <clears throat> Did Reverend Hoopsima ever advocate a split before he heard your so-called heretical sermon in September? Yes, he did. He did. At the time that Reverend Kamiga's sermon was treated, the Reverend Hoopsima said, Brethren, he said to the consistory, we can't do anything now, we have to wait. Time isn't right yet, but there are ministers in our group that aren't Protestant Reformed, and that's going to be revealed pretty soon in a split. There's going to be a split. The only way out. As the consistory, at the consistory meeting of June 15, where again the classical committee was present, yes, I have this question. Did not the Reverend Hooksima ask that the installation of the new elder be postponed until this matter was settled, being that he could not possibly know anything officially about the case? When the opposition was against this postponement and when on June 22 the new elder voted against the decision of classical was he not to blame himself for his own deposition? I answered that. It's in the questions. I got the impression last week when Reverend Hoopsman spoke here that you people are not in favor of our own schools. Is that correct? That certainly is not correct. Certainly isn't. I don't know what impression the Reverend Hoopsman left here. But, uh, of course, there is a much greater proportion of the congregation that is with us than there is with the Reverend Hoopsman, Hanko. And uh, they also, in their group, have people who are not in favor of our own school. Did the Protestants request classes? And by the way, we are not opposed to our own school. We certainly are not. Did the Protestants request classes east to give advice on the entire course of action to be taken by the consistory? I think I've answered that. They have no right to do that. Judging from your presentation of the case, I get the impression that the Reverend Hooksima was the Protestant, pressed his case very strongly, both at consistory and classes, was the prosecuting attorney, was judge and also voted in his own case. Is that correct? Well, you, at, you heard what I said. Why did you refuse to produce the apology you made since you had the record? Why did you refuse to apologize? Why did you refuse to produce the apology you made since you had the record? Well, that must mean the tape that I had of the, of the apology that I made on that Sunday evening. That's interesting. Uh, the consistory was discussing that, and then it was mentioned that, that a recording had been taken of that. 
that someone had the tape. And of course I had the tape because I asked that the record be taken for my own sake and that I would pay for the school and that it would be my property. And then it was, uh, the chairman said to me, he said, Reverend DeWolf, will you, uh, will you get that tape? Because the Reverend Hooksima had said that the, the consistory had the right to that tape since it was taken in public of the service and that therefore the consistory should have it. And so Reverend Hank, who was the chairman, said to me, Reverend DeWolf, will you get that tape and then we'll play it here. Then I said to Reverend Hanko, I said, I would like to know whether the consistory wants to hear it. And then there was a motion that I get the tape so that the consistory could hear it. That was supported. And that was voted down. And then I said to the brethren, I said, the only reason I asked for that is not because I'm unwilling to give that record, but I want it made plain to you here that not one man is the consistory here, but all of the brethren here, and I will bow before the decisions of the consistory. That was my take. I told the consistory that I would give it to whom I wanted to, and I would keep it if I didn't want to give it. It was my property. I offered, therefore, to read that apology as it had been taken off the wire, off the tape. And when that motion was made, that I read it, and one of the men, if you please, said, whether I would testify that what was coming from that, what I was reading there, was exactly the way it was on the tape. And I asked that man, I said, Mr. Chairman, do you want me to lay my hand on the Bible? Is that the way we do things in this consistory? That I have to swear that what I have here is the true record of what is on the tape. It is reported that the people in Fuller Avenue did not want the distinctive Protestant Reformed preaching of the Reverend Hooksima. Is this true? Did the consistory ever receive protests against such Reformed preaching? That's not my case. That's not my case here at all, that first question. Uh, it's not for me to answer. Did the consistory ever receive protests against the such Reformed preaching? I'm not in the position to answer that either. I'm sorry. On page 24 of your examination by the consistory, you said, because I would like to say this too, that the kingdom of God is spiritual, and that the horizontal line is the line of this world and this earth on which we live, and that the horizontal line of this earth and this life is intercepted by the vertical line of the kingdom of God that touches our life over and over again. Is not this the Barkian conception of the kingdom of God, which finally absolutely, which finds absolutely no support in scripture, or in the confession. That's what the Reverend Hooksima maintains, although at the same time he maintains that I know very little about Bach, which is also correct. Uh, by the way, I might say that the term the holy other, which is a favorite term of my senior colleague, or who was my colleague, is also barking. Why do you constantly, as for example in your Reformed Guardian, refer to the Reverend H. Hooksma as your opponent, since A, he was not even the first to protest against your preaching, 
nor by any means the only one to protest. The majority of the consistently condemned juridical statements, which decisions were never rescinded. The classes condemned the statements in question as literally heretical. A majority of the consistently adopted classes advice. Also, fourths consistently advised your suspension. Certainly, Reverend Hooksima did not do all these things alone, did he? Do you mean to imply that this whole action is a Hooksima case merely? And do not the facts show this to be entirely untrue? I think uh, that I have made quite clear what I feel about these things. And uh, that I feel that the person of Reverend Hooksima and the pressure which he exerted certainly has a tremendous amount to do with all these things that happened. I believe that. I certainly do. I think that answers that. Is there any proof that all the three ministers that wrote the favorable report on the DeWolf classes, case of classes retracted? No. I don't know of any proof for that. I don't know any proof for that at all. Is it according to church order that ministers make propaganda in churches other than their own without the consent of the consistory involved? Well, of course, this isn't a church. But as we said before, we would never have been here tonight if somebody else hadn't come here first. By the way, the mass meeting that was held in Fuller Avenue, I would like to have you know that, that we had our meeting first and that we invited no one from the outside, that it was merely a matter within our own congregation, that the meeting that was held under the leadership of the Reverend Hooksima and those that follow him, that it was announced in all the churches. Are not the synodicals like the Christian Reformed Church and does not... Reverend Hooksima bragged up all their books in the Standard Bear. Well, you folks that read the Standard Bear, I think, have an answer to that question. I, I really can't answer those things. I have tried to stay away from all those personal things as much as possible. It seems like someone gave him the same questions as we have on this copy, uh, Reverend DeWolf. It's kind of hard for me to sort them out so quickly. The classes certainly understood that your case and that of the elders supporting you were identical. On what basis can you deny that they were involved with you in the same case? And how then could they vote in their own case? Well, of course, as far as that first question is concerned, uh, the question was the case of the minister, which concerns the whole consistory. These men were involved because they stood with me. I maintain that those who stood against me are just as involved. And if those who are involved cannot vote, then none of them could vote. It wasn't their case. That's something else. And how could they vote in their own... I, I forgot one there. 
How could they vote in their own case? Because it is always possible to reject the advice of classes. That's always possible. That was done in 24, too. Kindly prove with documentary evidence that Fort's consistory in its decision used as one of its grounds for hesitation the fact that some elders have been refused the right to vote. You write this in the Reformed Guardian. Is it not true that Fourth Church nevertheless approved your suspension? I'm sorry, I, I haven't got the documentary evidence to prove that. Not here. No, not here. Concerning your would-be apology, what was not clear about your statements? Is not the case exactly that the statements were very clear but literally heretical? Is it not true that neither the consistory nor the classes judged your intentions but your words, all they were able to judge? If you do not mean to teach the heresies in question as you state in your would-be apology, why not openly retract those statements? Let me begin with the last one. Because to retract those statements, according to their demand, is to admit that I preached heresy because those statements do not stand alone but because they stand as they have interpreted them. That's why I can't do it. What was not clear about your statements? All right. The question, how are you going to interpret the promise? And is it true that when you say to somebody, if you believe you will be saved, that that means free will? doesn't mean that to me. That doesn't say anything about his ability to believe. The demand and the command to believe and to repent which Scripture teaches does not imply the ability to heed it. doesn't say anything about it. The preaching of that demand certainly does not imply any grace of God or any gracious attitude of God. It certainly is a question of interpretation. And what do you mean? The statements aren't that clear as it is contended here. Is it not true that neither the consistory nor the classes judge your intentions but your words? All they were able to judge. I think it would have been very brotherly and, and very charitable if they would also have taken my intentions and my ministry for so many years in the Protestant Reformed Churches into consideration. Especially when, the st when those statements did not necessarily mean heresy. Concerning the consistory meeting of June 1, where the advice of classes was adopted, you write of undue pressure and intimidation. I think I answered that. Who ever said that a consistory was bound to accept classes' advice? Well, they aren't. Kindly proved the charge that Reverend Voss intimidated the consistory and exerted undue pressure by quoting from Reverend Voss's recorded speech at that meeting. Where was all the undue pressure and intimidation since not a single elder changed his stand? What then has all this to do with the case? I thought I had explained that. I explained that in this way, that the elders were not free to vote because they were told that if they voted against that motion, and that motion was all one. That if they voted against that motion, that they were not Protestant Reformed. 
and that certainly took away the liberty of elders to vote. I think that's very evident. And uh, as far as Reverend Boss is concerned, the Reverend Boss made very clear. And I'm not going to go to the record and read that. If the individual that asked that question wants to know that, I'll, I'll do that for him personally. But I'm not going to look up that record at the time and try to find that. But the Reverend Boss certainly made very clear that the matter was decided by the classes. Why do you insist in slandering Reverend H. Hooksma? I have never slandered the Reverend Hooksma. I have said things... And I said that here tonight, before I began, that they were difficult to say and also for me, and I know some of these things are hard for you to believe, because they're hard for me to believe. I have not slandered the Reverend Hookson. I have never done anything like that. I have exactly not done that. On telling about matters of procedure instead of proving your two statements to be non-heretical, his classes and its members so weak that it can be pressured by one or two men. Why not prove the classical decision wrong? We'll do that too. But I can't do that tonight. I can't do everything at one time. Would you be willing publicly to debate Reverend H. Hooksma on this case in this hall at a specified date this fall, the Lord willing? Yes, very well possible. Very well possible, but I'd like to know the proposition. I'd want to know that. If the Reverend Hooksman wants to debate on the question that I'm a heretic, I think I'd be willing to debate with him on that question. Did you not, did, did not the 11 elders vote illegally in their own case? I think I answered that. Can you Prove your right to vote in the meeting of June 22. I didn't vote. Did you not inform Reverend C. Hanko after the meeting of June 22 that you, Reverend DeWolf, was preaching all services the following Sunday? Yeah, because he said he was going to go away. That's why. I said to him when he said, when he said, brethren, if you don't do this, it means a separation. Then I said to him, well, and that was after the motion to adjourn. I said to him, just a minute, that means then, doesn't it, that you will not be occupying this pulpit? He says, yeah, I suppose so. I says, that means then that I will be preaching here three times. He says, yes, I guess so. That's the way that happened. Is it not true that at the meeting of June 22, there was no question of any other apology than that advised by classes? Yeah, that's all right. But it still is the question, what did classes advise? And it still is the question whether that apology would not be satisfactory to the classes. For the classical decision is simply that I should apologize for having made those two statements. That's the decision of classes. By your so-called apology, do you not remove the guilt from yourself and place it on the Protestants and on the classes? No. Not at all. Not at all. I... My, as far as that's an apology, I apologize in as far as I was the occasion by not stating clearly. That's not putting the blame on anybody else. You mentioned many things about what the Protestants did with those two statements. Well, I'm at a loss there. Many things that the Protestants did with those two statements. 
I don't know what I talked about, but they did. That they, that they interpret them according to their own, uh, their own meaning, yes. Can you prove these things? Well, I think so. I think that follows from the very fact itself that I maintain that there, that those statements can be correctly interpreted. They maintain that that isn't possible. And uh, I maintain that they are interpreting just as well as I have said before. You have to ask yourself the question, what's the meaning of the promise? Of promise in that statement. You have to ask yourself the meaning of the relation of the various parts of the uh, sentence. And I certainly do not agree with that uh, parsing of that sentence as the Reverend Hooksima does that so that you finally get this that I promise everybody, that God promises that he will save everybody. I never said that in all my life. Never. Is your whole address, in your whole address, you did not discuss the doctrinal issue. Why not? Well, that's, of course, because I don't believe that there is essentially a doctrinal issue. I talked about my statements, but I feel that most of the objections of the opposition are not on the doctrinal score, but are on other things which are brought in, and which I believe really have nothing to do with the case. And I believe, too, that you folks should know. That's why I wanted to present that to you, what happened in our history and how these things were treated. Did you not make disparaging statements about election and about being Protestant Reformed in your sermon of April 1951? Emphatically not. And I am witness to that. I heard that sermon. That one statement that's being made so much of, let me just come back on that. I know it's getting late, but that one statement, some of you, some of you carry Protestant Reformed in your lapel. That statement is not true. And I have never admitted to that statement. I stated that distinctly in this way. I'm afraid that some of us, including myself, because we are all inclined to do that, and I was not picking parties out of the church at all, but I was including myself, and I was warning against formalism and against the idea that as long as you could say, well, I'm Protestant Reformed, that just uh, fills the bill. That's all that that's necessary. And I'm sure that the Reverend Hooksma has warned against that many times also. That's how my statement has been twisted. That's to find ammunition. Why? If it's a doctrinal issue, why don't we have the doctrinal issue then? Why have things like that? Did you speak of God's promise or of God declaring in that sermon of April 1951? I spoke of God's promise in the general use that you find of that word promise. And I could read that to you also from the Reverend Hooks and his works, and I'm going to do that because I know it's safe, but I want you to hear it. 
I use the word promise in no different way than he did in his book, in the sermon which he preached in his own congregation, uh, in his sermon on Romans. This is the 14th sermon. Does not the word of God clearly promise? Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And when the Lord says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, does not then the fulfillment of this promise of rest depend upon our coming to him? And is it not besides the experience of every sinner that is saved that he found God only in the way of seeking him? Or is there ever a sinner that finds God without having sought him, that found peace in the everlasting arms without having inquired after him? And so forth. That's the sense in which I use the word promise, in the sense that you can take God at his word. The word promise, by the way, is not even a special word in the Old Testament. Simply the word to speak, to say. In the Old Testament, and the word promise in the New Testament, every one of the words that are used, means in the very first meaning to declare, to announce. That's the first meaning. And I maintain that when God says something to you and me, that is true. And you don't have to say to God, well, God, do you promise that now? Because God never lies to you. And from that point of view, anything God declares in his word certainly has the force of being the truth. And you never, you may never and can never question it. From that point of view, it's a promise. How many times must one enter the kingdom of God? Continually. You enter the kingdom of God essentially, principally, through regeneration. You enter the kingdom of God consciously, in all your daily life, over and over again, in all its experiences, with, in all its relationships. Always when you turn from sin to the Lord, as you do that over and over again, you're entering the kingdom of God, and finally you enter the kingdom of God in its final manifestation. Do you ever convert yourself before entering the kingdom? Of course not. Of course not. Not before, that is, not before you're in the kingdom, principally. Conversion is always the result of regeneration, in the narrow sense of the word, as we speak of it. It seems from your discourse that at one consistory meeting the voting was favorable to you, while again at another it was it was opposed to you. And so seesawed back and forth. Can you give any reason for this? Is this because of the uncertainty of very slight majority? Shouldn't such weighty decisions be taken by a great majority? Well, that's what I have explained to you, I believe. I mentioned that. That I think that you should never decide weighty matters by a margin of one or two votes. Did you say, Reverend Voss said, that by virtue of the classical decision you were out of office? Does this mean that he believes classes can suspend and depose? Does Reverend Hooksima believe that too? No, I don't think they believe that. They, they know that that isn't true. They know that that isn't true. Classes in the Senate cannot depose. But when a class goes beyond its jurisdiction, then, of course, you have the same effect. You have the same effect, whether it's carried out by a consistory then, or whether the classes would do it itself, you have the same result. 
were the elders told they couldn't vote because it was their case? And yet didn't the Protestants vote because they said it was the class's case? Can you give uh, a little further light on this? Were not the elders told? Were the elders told that they couldn't vote because it was their their case? Yes, that's correct. That's what they were told. And yet didn't the Protestants vote because they said it was the case of classes? Yeah. In other words, on the one hand, they contended that it was uh, the case of the classes, and uh, therefore they as Protestants might vote. On the other hand, they contended that it was uh, a case of the consistory because they said that those men in the consistory who stood with me might not vote. So you certainly have that contradiction there. Uh, that's all, that all follows from the fact that classes has, had simply gone beyond its jurisdiction and did not leave this matter to the consistory to settle. Why, what do you mean that classes went beyond its jurisdiction? Well, that's nice. I've been talking about that all the time. I mean that when classes decided that the consistory should do something, when the consistory did not ask that some, for that advice, that's going beyond jurisdiction. Many of you know that a church has come to the classes and it said, Brethren, we have a case. What must we do with this? And the only advice they received was this. You go back and take action. You go back and take action. This is not a, a bureau for information of what you should do. We don't hand out advice like that. That's not the jurisdiction of the classes. The classes can, can give advice only upon action and where that advice is requested. And it cannot go beyond that request. The Protestants did not advise, did not ask for advice in what must be done and neither did the consistory. Reverend Hookson has stated that the elders who were to be installed, that the elder who was to be installed was on your side. And yet one of his grounds for asking the, that his installation be postponed was that this new elder knew nothing of the case. How could Reverend Hooksima know that he was on your side since the man according to Reverend Hooksima, would not even know there were sides. Yeah, that is nice, isn't it? He wasn't ready to vote. He didn't know anything about the case. But nevertheless, the Reverend Hooksima says he was on my side. Well, I suppose those things can be. But uh, I don't think that that's so pertinent. Is that all you have? Well, I certainly appreciate your patience with me. And uh, I hope that you will take these things in the spirit in which I gave them. I become a little bit worked up. If I could sit down, I perhaps wouldn't, wouldn't even do that. But uh, standing here, I perhaps have become a little vehement at times. But I want you to understand that I am truly grieved about these things. Very much grieved. 
And uh, as far as the future is concerned, we'll simply have to leave it in the hand of the Lord. Thank you. I also wish to thank you for your fine response to this meeting. This audience is indeed gratifying for myself, Reverend Wolf, and the others who were interested in organizing this meeting upon our request at so short a notice last Saturday morning, and also for your very splendid attention which you have given uh, Reverend DeWolf. In closing, let us sing of number 65, the first stanza, Grace and truth shall mark the way, where the Lord his own will lead, if his word they still obey, and his testimonies heed. The first stanza of number 65. opportunity which thou hast given us to testify of these things which are of great import to each and every one of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who love his kingdom and the coming of his day. And Lord, we confess that many sins have cleaved unto us in all things. Graciously pardon our sins. And look upon us in the blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, in whom thou hast also adopted us from eternity unto thy own glory of sovereign grace alone, that we should not boast in the flesh, but that all boasting should be in thee forever and ever. For thou art God alone, and thou art the God of our salvation from beginning even unto the end. And so we pray of thee, give, could it be that this meeting may be used to unite us together in true Christian love, in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that unitedly we may go forth as thy people, proclaiming the praises of our God. Dismiss us graciously with thy blessing. And bless thy kingdom over all this world. Bless our churches in which thou hast given us a name and place. Could it be, Lord, bring peace. Bring true brotherly love for thy name's sake. And if it please thee to lead us further in this way of departing from one another, let our trust be in thee. And let us walk at thy side in the full confidence that walking in thy way we shall be blessed for thy name's sake. Amen.